Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Hannah Walker, who is the author of Mobilized by Injustice, Criminal Justice Contact, Political Participation, and Race. This was published by Oxford University Press um, in 2020, and it is a really elegantly written exploration of an understanding of political participation and to some degree corrections around some of our understanding of political participation. Um, So I'm delighted to welcome Hannah Walker to the podcast and I want to ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project. Hello Hannah. Hi Lily, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you today about my book Mobilized by Injustice. So um, I started working on this project, uh, as is noted in the in the um, preview to the book. To the book, it began as my dissertation project, and so I started working on the dissertation pretty pretty early on in my graduate school career. Um, and I kind of started just by, just with a seminar paper and asking this question about what is the impact of experiences with the criminal justice system on um, the political behavior, not necessarily of individuals who have personally been incarcerated or who have personally had uh, come and become entangled in the criminal legal system, but who are the family members, the loved ones, and in particular community in, in communities that are highly policed. So I started out with an interest in, in really the community-wide effects um, of the criminal justice system. And had this really unique finding where, you know, all the literature would predict that um, we would observe demobilization and political withdrawal among this group. Um, but I was finding in our in our funky little University of Washington um, statewide survey, I was finding um, evidence of mobilization. And so um, when I for, had that finding initially, uh, it was peculiar um, to me. And so that it that's what you know, made it suitable for a dissertation project um, and and sort of exploring it, trying to break it and see if I could, you know, replicate it and so forth. And the dissertation work itself started to really take off and develop in um, 2014. In the beginning of 2014, I was, you know, at the dissertation stage at that time and I was in the field conducting interviews um, for the project and that was also the moment when um, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson happened. And um, we saw the, the resp- responses across the country um, to, to that incident. And we saw in that moment the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so then it took on uh, a level of urgency that, uh, that, hadn't previously, that I hadn't necessarily previously felt within the context of the project. And it's all, that is sort of the moment also when I decided this really needs to be a book and, and um, in order to sort of do justice to the activists that I was working among and who contributed to, to the dissertation project, uh, it became very important to me to make sure that I shepherded the project through to the book stage. And, and it's, a, it's a really deep dive into a lot of different aspects of criminal justice and political science. And one of the points that you make is that it's kind of a fusion in a space that's not usually fused together. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of disciplinary boundaries that you encountered as you took on this research, not only at the dissertation stage, but also in turning it into a book and to some degree in your academic career? Sure. Yeah. Um, yes. So yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and I'm not the first person to recognize this. This is an observation, you know, made early on by Marie Gottschalk and, um, Beshel Weaver and Amy Lerman and others, but that political science has really traditionally not paid a lot of close attention to the criminal justice system. Um, and by the same token has paid perhaps less attention to, um, the political voices and the political agency of marginalized populations of what Sauce and Weaver call race class subjugated communities. That doesn't mean that meaningful work isn't really happening around issues related to, to criminal justice. However, a lot of that action is in sociology um, and in the in in law and politics. And so, you know, I have always approached this project from an interdisciplinary perspective, finding some of the most useful work to be sort of over in sociology. But what um, sociology and other disciplines really miss is they miss the um, important questions of, of politics, right? They The p- political science is uniquely suited to tell a story about political institutional development and then, and then the political consequences of the way that those institutions develop. And so um, I entered into a space that was already starting to develop um, before I, I got here, um, but, and, but since I got here has really taken off and grown. And that's one that tries to think about really the criminal justice system as a political space um, where politics I- is made. And, and so in order to sort of provide that context more broadly in terms of the, the work that you're doing, one of the things that you lay out early on in the book is that there are these kind of, as you say, blind spots with regard to our understanding of sort of political activation and activities of those, as you say, who are connected to the criminal justice system, either through a relative or friend um, or community member who has been incarcerated or they themselves have been incarcerated. And this is kind of the crux of your of your thesis. Can you talk a bit about um, you know, this this question of political activation um, and the and the way that this is driving your research? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned sort of the disciplinary bl- blind spots. Um, that I introduce early on. And so that the blind spot there is really about what we consider to be political um, mobilization and political activity that's worthy of study. And so the the discipline is very, very focused on voting and the conditions under which people vote, how we get how we um, how we get people to the polls, and then the, what the impact of, of voting is on policy outcomes. And that's really important. And it's really clear why we would focus in on voting, right? And on that electoral connection. Um, and early works around um, politi- around criminal justice, that some of the stuff that really launched um, what is happening in this, sort of s- this little corner of the discipline now, also focused on voting and found sort of universal withdrawal across all types of experiences with the criminal justice system. Scholars were observing that people were, that those types of experiences were leading to a decline in voting. Um, And so 
Um, what my work tries to do is open that, that up, say, there, and, and take as a point of departure this idea that like political participation takes many, many forms. Voting is one really key important way that people can participate, um, but it's not the sum total of what happens in political life. And when we're thinking about race class educated communities, people who are really deeply impacted by the criminal justice system, um, who are bare, who are unlikely voters from the get go because of their um, social location, um, we need to think more broadly about the kinds of things that they may engage in. Um, to to express their their political voice and so that's a key point of departure it's a key difference between my work and other uh, things that have been written where i find that people who are mobilized as a consequence of these experiences are engaging in a whole array of activities um most notably things like protests signing petitions attending community meetings these sorts of things throughout the book i use a pretty standard measure of non-voting participation and consistently find a positive like a, a, a positive relationship between um, what I call proximal contact, which is that idea of having a loved one who's become caught up in the system, even if you yourself have not. Um, and so I find a pretty robust relationship there. But I also am trying sort of suggesting that like it's a really blunt measure. How what would we what would we observe if we had a more sensitive measure or more uh, sensitive set of measures that really spoke to um, how members of race, class, subjugated communities are trying to impact their own political life worlds. And and this is also what I found interesting in terms of how you set up the research. You note that um, even researchers who have sort of stumbled upon some of this um, political activity have still concluded that there's less political activity um, in the by those who are either um, had been incarcerated or by those who are connected to people who have been incarcerated. Can you explain a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think that work that has come before has really um, rightly focused on in on the tremendous capacity for the criminal justice system to degrade the, the social and political fabric of the United States. I think that is, um, and, and they, and, and so they were using, um, political participation, political behavior as an entry point to speak about that ter tremendous capacity. And we should not lose sight of that, um, by any stretch of the imagination. But it also is true that, you know, once we start looking across some of the, the seminal works, we see, okay, there's a little, there's a little spot here that suggests there may be mobilization. And there's sort of one data point in each piece that suggests that, and within the context of the larger works, uh, are anomalous. Uh, but if you start to look across them and you say, okay, now we have three or four data points across three or four different really important studies that are suggestive that there's something else going on here. Um, and so that's sort of how, that's the space that I enter into. And to be honest with you, as a graduate student, what I was do when I had this mobilization finding, I was just like, this is, this is crazy. I cannot believe that, that, uh, that I'm finding this. This is so, you know, out of step with, with what we would expect given the existing literature. And I sort of thought, did I miss something when I was, you know, reading these works? And I went back to them and revisited them to read them really closely to see if I could find any hints about how to understand and further explore the finding that I had. Um, and that's when I began to see these data points. 
um, popping out. And, and so I also wanted to ask you about a terminology that you use early on in the, in the book, but also is contextualized by what we're talking about here, which is the question of voting. And obviously we have, um, this, this issue around, um, whether people who have been incarcerated have the right to vote depending on the state that they're in and, and so forth. Um, but also the, the individuals who are activated by relationship or context or, or sort of proximity to, um, the criminal justice system. And you talk about this understanding of custodial citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd love for you to explain what this terminology means and how we should think about it in terms of the criminal justice system itself, but also the United States more broadly. Okay. Yeah, great. That's a, um, so I should just note that because the the terminology of custodial citizenship is not mine. That comes from that groundbreaking work by um, Lerman and Weaver in their book, Arrested Citizenship. And um, it comes from this idea of the American carceral state. Well, what is the American carceral state? Well, the American carceral state, the way that we understand it, refers to both the extraordinarily high rates of incarceration that the United States now experiences, um, the deeply racialized nature of criminal justice outcomes, but it also refers to what Marie Gottschalk calls the prison beyond the prison, Um, the, the sort of vast social space where members of race class subjugated communities are surveilled and, um, and their actions and behaviors um, are monitored and regulated um, by the state um, as a consequence of their connection or the, or the connection of a loved one um, to the criminal justice system. And so, you know, it includes things like uh, prison, probation, and parole. It includes things like legal financial obligations that may be a consequence of like criminal convictions, but also may be a consequence of the more routine experience of having a misdemeanor. It refers to the ways in which welfare policy maybe inhibits access to social goods for ex-offenders and returning citizens and their families. Um, So it it refers to that whole broad array of policies that serve to continually um, marginalize uh, individuals who become involved with the cr- criminal legal system, even beyond, um, a- even beyond the space of, of whatever time they may or may not serve in prison. Um, and so that's what is understood by the, um, that is what we understand as the American carceral state. And so custodial citizenship is um, understood to be people who have become involved with the criminal legal system um, and who may have served, completed the terms of their sentence, but nevertheless continue to be stigmatized by and to um, have their lives defined by um, that criminal legal involvement. And and so, I mean, we see policies like this right now under discussion with regard to um, voter enfranchisement in Florida right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as in a variety of ways, as we're sort of talking about um, a lot of the demands over the summer with regard to police reforms. Um, and I, I mean, I just read a Twitter thread this morning about the fact that in the District of Columbia, you have the decriminalization and legalization of marijuana use, but the communities that have 
um, over time been associated with marijuana use are still being focused on. Um, and so this is, again, a representation of what you're talking about with regard to sort of you are a citizen of the United States, but you experience that citizenship very differently um, if you are associated with the criminal justice system. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Those are two really good examples, right? So um, on the one hand, if we're thinking about um, reenfranchisement in Florida, the the case in Florida has centered around, so for people who may not be familiar, um, citizens in the state of Florida um, uh, passed Amendment 4 in 2018, which restored um, access to the franchise for all but a select group of individuals um, with felony convictions. Um, But in the aftermath of that, the legislature passed additional additional laws which said that uh, included in having to have completed the terms of your sentence was having to have paid off uh, legal financial obligations that you may continue to owe in full. And so the case has centered around, okay, you know, trying to break down what are legal financial obligations. Is it possible to, to inform uh, an, a person with a felony conviction as to whether or not they've paid off their legal financial obligations in full? Is this law even Im- able to be implemented? And so it's not centered around questions about about sort of the normative democratic implications of extending access to the franchise for people who have served their time. That's not the question that's on the table. The question that seems to really be on the table is, um, is this even implementable? And then by turn, if the state of Florida does figure out how to implement it in in some kind of concise way, legal financial obligations uh, become this extra added thick layer um, that are an institutional barrier to, to accessing the right to vote for ex-felons in Florida. And so that's a really good example of sort of what we mean by custodial citizenship and the way in which your sentence lives on long beyond the life of your your, your prison sentence. And then the other example that you gave um, about so, uh, the, the legalization of marijuana in the District of Columbia, um, but, the, but, but nevertheless, people who, um, who become involved with the criminal legal system for reasons related to marijuana are continue to disproportionately be um, African-American. And so that's tied up with the way that um, policing operates in the United States and the types of institutional policies and practices um, that are involved in enforcing the law that disproportionately uh, target um, uh, poor minority communities. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And, and so I wanted to ask you a, a bit about this sort of the racial dynamic here in terms of your research itself, in part because you talk about the fact that um, one's understanding of the criminal justice system is usually colored by either your association with it directly um, or your essentially your disassociation with it. 
um, having not had somebody you know personally engaged with the criminal justice system. And this question of how you think about it as being actually just and fair or unjust or unjust and and applied unjustly and unfairly. Um, and you break this down in terms of um, white Americans, black Americans, and Latino Americans. Um, can you dive a little bit into that research and the way that you started to see some of these um, dynamics around understanding the criminal justice system itself? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, one thing I was really interested in doing was um, understanding how these dynamics may vary across racial subgroups, as you noted, in particular, focusing in on um, whites, blacks, and Latinos, and comparing and contrasting those experiences. Um, and um, I found, so this is kind of a pitch for research that compares <laughs> and contrasts across uh, racial subgroups, where so often we're either focused on um, on national samples that are predominantly white, or we focus in on Latinos by themselves or Black Americans by themselves. So this is a pitch for um, cross cross uh, racial investigation. But um, I what I was interested in was through that process of comparing and contrasting across these three subgroups, what could I learn about the nature of the institution itself and how the institution operates um, in the United States? And so um, and so I think another part. Another story that I had to explain as I was doing that work was as I broke it out among racial subgroups and started to do some quantitative analysis um, that tried to drill down on differences across these groups, I was finding that um, actually once we introduce the idea of injustice into, into the data, uh, what we find is that the uh, perceptions of injustice mobilize across all three subgroups. And that's I think surprising. There's no reason to assume that that would be the case. We could uh, we could imagine a scenario where whites are especially mobilized as they come to learn about the system and it's normalized for black Americans. And so we don't see an impact on participation or we could um, imagine a, a scenario that's uh, exactly the opposite, where the mobilizing effect for black Americans is uh, especially pronounced, given that um, their communities are so adversely affected by criminal justice policies. And so. Um, so I had, but I had this really interesting finding where across all three subgroups, once you arrive at a sense of injustice, um, that sense of injustice uh, has the capacity to mobilize. Um, and so then I, so then I want to know, okay, uh, but this is the criminal justice system. And so are there differences? And if there are differences, what are they? And a lot of that, I, uh, I got a lot of leverage from my, in, the in-depth interviews that were conducted uh, for the project in trying to uncover what some of those uh, differences were. Um, and so through those in-depth interviews, what I learned is that uh, white Americans um, predominantly employ, you know, uh, uh, class-based narratives to explain their own experiences as systemically unjust, but they also employ class-based narratives and socioeconomic narratives um, and actually maybe even political economic narratives to explain other types of unequal criminal justice outcomes. So, um, and even when asked to explain like why we might um, see, see racial differences, um, the folks that I interviewed very often would pivot back to um, questions of poverty, the extent to which um, if you are wealthy, you, it, your capacity to navigate the criminal justice system is much easier. And then also the extent to which uh, they viewed the criminal justice system as profit driven and 
Um, and as a consequence of that, that is how they they came to understand it as unjust. And so, of course, for um, Black and Latinx people, the story is quite different. And so for Black Americans, um, race is really at the center of that story. That does not mean that there's not a socioeconomic analysis, um, but instead it means that race is at the center, right? And so um, what a lot of the folks I interviewed were telling me about was uh, what we would uh, in scholarly terms probably call uh, racial capitalism. And so the extent to which the prison system allows for the exploitation of labor, um, but that it's connected um, backwards to previous iterations of racial control to the new Jim Crow and to, or to Jim Crow and to slavery. Um, and then with, with Latinx folks, um, what I wanted to know about this, and so this be- became one of the most interesting um, and generative pieces of the project for me, because what I wanted to know with Latinx folks was the ways in which they may be uniquely targeted by the criminal justice system um, above and beyond their status as people of color. So there is a story for, for Latinx Americans that sounds pretty similar in the, um, to, to the types of experiences that Black Americans have, and they understand um, their own relationship to it in ways that are similar um, to Black Americans. But they're also uniquely targeted for, uh, for contact with law enforcement uh, for reasons related to immigration. And this becomes sort of increasingly relevant and an important line of inquiry in the present political moment where local law enf- enforcement is routinely used to uh, and increasingly used to enforce immigration po- policy with the expansion of immigration enforcement into the interior part of the country. And and so in part of your story, as you say, this this sort of understanding of the sort of cross-racial investigation um, was is is a part of the broader story. But I would love for you to explain a little bit about how you develop the sort of research methodology um, to get at this information, because you talk about the fact that you do a broad-based sort of quantitative analysis, but that you also have the interviews and you start off the book talking about particular anecdotal um, sort of uh, engagement with two individuals who have their own relationship to the criminal justice system. Yeah. So, I mean, I started with, I, I, I did this backwards. When you do multi-method research, you should really start with um, qualitative research as a way of developing theory and then testing hypotheses. And, you know, I did it backwards. I started with that. Like I said, I had that particular funky Um, finding where there was a strong positive association between contact and participation. And so what I did immediately was try to find as many data sets as I possibly could that had measures of experiences with the criminal justice system in them um, to try to assess the robustness of the finding. And then the second thing that I started doing was looking for not just any old data set, but as many data sets as I could that really captured the populations of interest. Um, and really captured communities that were most strongly impacted by the criminal justice system. And so two pieces, two data sets in in the book that become very important to that are the African-American Men's Survey, um, which includes a a robust oversample of um, both African-Americans, but in particular um, young African-Americans between the ages of 18 and 34, and then the Latino National Health and Immigration Survey. 
um, which was collected by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2015 and um, uh, displays sort of superior sampling methods in trying to reach um, Latinos in the United States and and in particular um, non-citizens. And so that, I mean, that's where I started, but, um, but I didn't just want to tell a quantitative story. Um, I also had a bunch of cross-sectional surveys that didn't really allow me to get at a, at a clear analysis of what the underlying mechanisms may be connecting um, proximal contact to a participation outcomes. Um, and I didn't have data that would allow me to tell a rich, clear story about how to fit um, whatever I was observing together with what we already know about the criminal justice system, which is, uh, you know, how profoundly corrosive it can, civically, profoundly corrosive it can be in both civic and social terms. And so, um, and so the in-depth interviews become a really important part of um, telling this story, telling this story overall. And, and I, I found that the, the multi-method approach was really interesting in terms of understanding not only the survey data that you were um, finding and aggregating, but also in terms of the examples that you sort of pull out um, and, and think of, and thinking about. And I also found that this was the, the two sides that you present also, and not only the individuals themselves who have had their own experience with the carceral state, but the people who are connected to them. Um, and as you say, this was kind of how you started the, the research itself was looking at like how the community is impacted. Can you tease out some of the distinctions that you saw in these ways that, both sides were mobilized towards political activity. In one side, you obviously have people who may, in, in, in fact, still have their capacity to vote um, because they are relatives of people who are incarcerated, um, but that you are looking at different activities and the activities themselves that become more clear as you were plowing through the research. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. So one of the, I think one of the, insights that I gained from this project or that I was able to offer up through this project is the important distinctions between personal contact and in particular long experiences with long-term incarceration and what I, as I've already noted, I've been calling proximal contact, that sort of second order experience with the criminal justice system. And, you know, that's a, that becomes a really important point of theoretical leverage as I try to chart out a path by which individuals may be mobilized. Because as you noted, people with proximal contact don't face the same institutional barriers to participation. They also don't, although policy does extend um, punishment in certain ways to this group, they don't have to do things like check the box on 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 an employment application. Um, and so they retain, they, they face fewer efficacy and resource barriers to participation than do individuals with uh, long-term incarceration, who have experienced in particular long-term incarceration. Um, and they also may engage in activities that we don't necessarily immediately think of as political, uh, but they invest with political meaning, but there also are routine activities that they engage in on the way to helping their loved one negotiate the system. And so, you know, they're doing things like starting support groups, which then become the basis for further political action. Um, 
if it, you know they can they are contacting ele- elected officials and other public uh, government officials as they try to get information um, and advocate for their loved one. And so there are sort of these natural ways in which they begin they they find their way into politics. I think, um, but for those who have personal contact uh, and in, like I said, in particular in particular long term incarceration, there are much more significant resources resource and efficacy barriers to participation. One individual who I interviewed for the project uh, who himself was previously incarcerated, but who was an activist. And that's, you know, I identified the people that I interviewed uh, largely through their connection to advocacy um, and service-based organizations. And so, you know, a number of the folks I interviewed were already fairly active. And so I asked him, I asked him sort of, what's the difference between you, who's very, very active and you know, some of the folks that you're trying to support and mentor who are coming out of prison and who are, you know, just trying to get their bearings to say nothing in society, to say nothing of their of uh, their interest in becoming politically active. And what he said was um, prisoners have a dignity deficit. Um, and that idea of a dignity deficit, I think, become, like really is illustrative of the sorts of things that ex-offenders themselves are having to contend with. And also indicative of the sort of extra sorts of supports that social and um, individual supports that um, can can help um, them enter in, enter into the political space. So in in the book, I note the importance of community based organizations uh, to helping people develop a sense of injustice and providing them with opportunities to participate. And in my estimation. Um, connection to a community-based organization for this reason that the individual that I interviewed noted, which is this I- issue of, a, of having a dignity deficit um, and sort of having to deal with and struggle with that messaging that you receive from the criminal justice system that, you know, you're a bad person, the thing that you, the, the experiences that you have are a result of your own poor choices and so forth. That's that extra institutional support that can be provided by community-based organizations um, ends up being a really important story, important part of the story, I think, to the to the mobilization of individuals who are themselves custodial citizens. And and so I want to ask you a question about <clears throat> the events of this past summer since June mm-hmm. um, with regard to, um, you know, sort of all of the marches and political engagement that we've seen not only in the United States, but elsewhere associated with Black Lives Matter um, resulting from the, you know, the filming of George Floyd's murder, um, and and so forth, and I'm not even sure how to frame the question, except that your research seems to map onto a lot of what we're seeing in front of us, um, and many of us may also be participating in. Can you talk a little bit about how you are? digesting and analyzing the activities that we are seeing um, across the United States that resulted in this summer of racial unrest that's circling around police reform and carceral state reform? Yeah, um, I think it's... So, as you know, the story that's told, that I, that is told in the book, um, maps onto what we're experiencing now. The narratives that come out of the book, the sorts of nascent demands that the activists I interviewed for the book are, uh, were making then are, have progressed, have those voices have gotten louder. 
the demands for things like defunding the police have become sort of more more squarely within the realm of political of popular discourse in a way that they hadn't previously. And so, but that's not because I was particularly prescient and more, more speaks more to the work that the activists on the ground were already doing and have been doing for the last six years, right? So it's important in this, I think, current political moment and maybe departing from what the book has to offer or, or maybe not, I'm not sure, but it's important to keep this moment to connect this moment to a much longer history of organizing that where where we're in we're in a we're in a particular moment and that moment is not only about the summer of 2020 but that's a that's a that's a moment that that i think begins in 2013 picks up steam in 2014 and 2015 um and then maybe even takes on a, a much broader set of claims and a much broader energy um, in 2016, 2017, 2018, and so on. So I think that's what I'm thinking a lot about. I'm thinking a lot about the fact that the um, the protests that we're seeing and the extent to which they are sustained and the demands are decidedly more radical, where activists have less patience for um, reform, more reform-minded um, policy solutions. That is um, a direct consequence and a direct credit to the the political organizing that activists have been undertaking, even undertaken for a long time, even as it's not been, you know, as explicitly visible as it is in this particular moment. And and in terms of our understanding of, you know, sort of the criminal justice system in the United States and the carceral state, which is a lot of what is in the background as opposed to necessarily being in the foreground of your research because it's the it's the sort of context in which the individuals that you're exploring have existed and have understood themselves we have these discussions of criminal justice reforms coming from both the left and the right in the United States um, and perhaps finally reckoning with you know sort of the ridiculous statistics around how many people are incarcerated in the United States. Um, can you talk about the political activity that you see in your research and some of these press presses for reform of that very institution? Yeah, I'm yes, absolutely. So um, the, the activism, so the act, many of the activists that I interviewed for the book um, were, came from Seattle. I was in, I did my PhD at the University of Washington. So I started um, where I was. And um, those activists were really um, involved in, and I, this is a story that makes its way into the book somewhat. Um, they were involved in protesting the expansion of a juvenile detention center that was located in the, in Seattle's um, historic black neighborhood. And so, um, and so they were really, really strongly involved in trying to get the city council and get the, the powers that be to commit to um, zero youth incarceration. So what they wanted to do, what the, uh, what the politicians have wanted to do is they wanted to refurbish this detention center because it was in in terrible shape. It was not 
a service to anybody. And it was, you know, putting a youth who were incarcerated in harm's way. And so what they wanted to do was refurbish the center. They wanted to make it better. They also wanted to expand the capacity for juvenile detention, and they wanted to combine detention services with services for homeless youth. And so what these activists were doing was they were saying, why do we need to incarcerate youth at all? And that, and so that activism is a direct response to the sort of punitive turn that's been taken um, in, uh, in the United States since the 1950s, although I think uh, many, many scholars have argued that that, that that turn happened a lot, a lot sooner. But, um, but this sort of radical question of like, why do we need to incarcerate youth? Um, it, and that sort of trying to imagine a different world is something that I think has animated, um, has animated activists for a long time. But I think the other part of it is that what the activists in Seattle were doing is they were trying to address the specific problems in Seattle, right? That that was a specific place where they could um, organize and mobilize around um, more, more radical goals and introduce a more radical sort of framework of analysis into the local landscape. And I think that that's what has been happening in communities across the country for a long time. We can sort of see that same ethos uh, animating the organizing of individuals in um, in New York City around uh, issues related to stop and frisk, where the application of stop and frisk and the racialized application of stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional in 2013. We can see that kind of uh, ethos animating, mobilizing around, uh, for restorative justice reforms um, in Washington, D.C., which were successfully passed, um, I think, in 2014 or 2015. Um, so, so, it's both about this sort of bigger um, framework this and this bigger call to rethink the way that we solve social problems in the United States, but it's also intensely local. And it's about sort of what are the battles that we can, that activists can fight in their own spaces and in their own communities. And so one of the points that you sort of make in the book a little bit along the way and that you've sort of referenced also in this conversation is that there's more research yet to be done Mm -hmm. um, and in in a variety of directions. Um, And so my question to you is, where are you taking this research now? Yeah. um, Yes. Yes. I think like that is the, the number one lesson from that I've learned from working on this topic is that it's uh, it's there's just it's a, it's a tremendously rich space uh, to be working in with, unfortunately, a, a lot more work to be done. And so the work that the, my particular, my personal research agenda, I have two, two topics right now, or two projects right now that I'm really excited about. Um, one of them, which is a solo project, is trying to chart the political causes and consequences of the rise of uh, immigration enforcement in the interior part of the United States. So I'm continuing to pursue questions about sort of how are Latinx people uniquely targeted by the criminal justice system. Um, and so I have a whole chapter on it in the book, but like the piece that was really hard to tell from the secondary literature that wasn't told to, I wasn't able to tell to my satisfaction is that piece about 
um, the institutional development of these programs um, that deputize local law enforcement to act as ICE agents. So that's one piece that I'm uh, pursuing. And then the other piece that I'm pursuing is that that I'm not pursuing on my own, but that is collaborative with uh, Ariel White, Laurel Eckhouse, and Allison Harris, um, tries to examine the conditions under which individuals um, actually can be brought into the electorate. And so we've undertaken a series of pilot experiments, and we're about to go into the field with a, a scaled up version that tries to target individuals with felony convictions who may nevertheless be eligible to vote because they've completed the terms of their sentence, depending on what states they're living in, um, and uh, tries to target them and uh, and um, bring them into the electorate and get them registered in particular. So I hope that when either of these projects are next completed that you yourself or you and your co-authors will come and speak to me about them on the New Books Network. Happily. We will happily do that. And thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I've been talking to Hannah Walker about her new book, Mobilized by Injustice, Criminal Justice, Contact, Political Participation, and Race. This is published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. I assume it's available at Oxford University Press's website and other places where people buy books, unless there's a brick and mortar store that you want to give a shout out to that's fulfilling orders online. I, I don't. Um, I don't. I go to go to the Oxford website, order it there. That sounds great to me. Thanks for joining me today, Hannah.